We are Rogue Media Sports. Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Jeff Perlman has been on the New York Times bestseller list 10 times. And his book, The Last Folk Hero, about Bo Jackson, is right in my wheelhouse, and hopefully it'll be in yours, too. He has written books about the New York Mets, about the USFL, the 86 Mets, the USFL, uh, the Cowboys of the 90s. Just the guy has an incredible way of digging into a story, doing a ton of research. He talked to more than 700 people uh, for this book about Bo Jackson, and it's an amazing story. Uh, you know, I've gone through the book, and, and going through this interview with Jeff was just fantastic. So... I am very, very happy to present my conversation with New York Times bestselling author Jeff Perlman. All right, first of all, thank you so much. I, I was telling a buddy of mine the other day, uh, I, I really feel like uh, you, you, you've been talking to me for all these years. You, I feel like you've written these books for dudes like me, like guys that grew up in, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and the way that you tackle these topics and the detail in which you use to cover them is unbelievable. You talked to 720 people for The Last Folk Hero, the Bo Jackson book? I did. I just want to say you're basically saying to me, Thank you for writing books for old people. <laughs> Don't say that, man. Oh, yeah, sorry. Right. Yeah, yeah. But you talked to 720 people? I did. I did. Um, I just think, uh, you know, I learned when I was at Sports Illustrated this sort of idea of um, always making the next call, always making the next call, always making the next call. And a lot of times what happens is you talk to one person and they'll say, well, you know who you need to talk to and you need to talk to this person. You should talk to this person. And have you heard talk to his coach or – Oh, I know the guy who caught that ball. It's Eddie. You should call Eddie. So it just becomes his odyssey, you know, and um, it's my favorite part of it all is actually the interviewing of people. One of the stories I love about, and we'll get to Bo Jackson after this one portion, you go to J.R. Ryder's house when you're writing Three Ring Circus and you right. knock, I mean, that is old school and you knock on the door and it's almost like an intimidating, awkward situation. But then you, you go inside and you end up talking to the dude for three hours. Well, you got a little wrong and a little right. I did go to his door and it was intimidating and it's probably a little old fashioned. I do. I, I always say erroneously that I like knocking on doors. I don't like knocking on doors because it's terrifying, but I like the challenge of it and I like the rush of it, but it is a lot like being in really bad turbulence on a flight where you're like pretty sure to work out. But so, um, basically I went to his house on oh, my dog's going to start. Barking. Oh, I funny. went to his house and, um, knocked on the door and his uh first a kid answered and the kid's like um who are you and i'm like uh, or i'm like hey my name's jeff Perno's jr here and uh he's like hold on and a woman comes to the door and she's like who are you and i'm like hey my name's jeff Perno. i'm writing a book looking for jr hold on one second and then i hear i hear a guy and this woman kind of yelling at each other <laughs> 
who is it? Blah, blah, blah. Well, then um, J.R. Ryder comes to the door. And I recognize him, obviously, from being a sports writer. And he's like, uh, who are you? And I'm like, hey, my name is Jeff Perlman. I'm working on a book about uh, the Shaq. Or I'm, work I'm a writer. And he goes, nah, nah, man. You can't just, nah, you can't just show up at someone's house like that. Nah, -uh, nah. And then he opens the door and he comes out. He's like, bro, you just show up? Like, you just fucking show up? Are you, bro, what? And he goes on and on. He's kind of, I'm like, I don't know how this is going to go. And then um, <laughs> yeah. he he's like, I had my USFL book with me. He's like, what's that? I was like, oh, it's this book I wrote about the USFL, this old football league. And he goes, uh, is that the Trump League? And I was like, yeah. He's like, you don't, you, you just don't show up at someone's house, man. But what are you writing about? And I'm like, well, Shaq Kobe. Yeah, that was pretty good years. <laughs> Those are some good years. <laughs> He's like, all right, man. And then we ended up talking on the phone. He gave me his number. He's like, I can't talk now. And we spoke for about two hours on the phone. Okay, so, that uh, was it, yeah. And But that shows yeah. like, you know, every, you're, you're chipping away a lot of times. Oh, yeah. And it's like, I just find, I hate knocking on doors. I love knocking on doors. Truly, it's both. I, I, It's terrifying. It's scary. It's unsettling. But at the same time, it's kind of cool and it's impactful and you always you i always walk away with really cool stories of knocking on doors like literally i'm not saying the stories i get for the book i'm talking about the story of actually going to knock on the door yeah why not being a fun story to tell someone as long as i don't get shot or punched it's like a bad date pretty much it's always it's like a bad date story yeah. or a bad prom story yeah, yeah. bad prom stories right yeah like <laughs> all right let's get into bo jackson you do such a good job of explaining uh you know the makeup of Bo Jackson, why he is the way he is, especially when you go into his childhood in, in Bessemer, Alabama. What was his childhood like? Uh, pretty bad. I mean, very, very rural South, late 60s, early 70s, African-American uh, benchmarks. Example, he's a uh, dirt poor in an exclusively African-American community on a 100% African-American street, Butler Avenue in Bessemer, Alabama. His mom was a single mom who worked two or three jobs as a maid at local motels. His dad lived across town with his own family and had little to do with Bo. Uh, Bo was growing up alongside 10 siblings. He's one of 11, but grew up alongside 10 in a three-room house, not three-bedroom, but three-room house with no running water. And there was an outhouse on the property. Um, he had a severe stutter. He uh, he was held back a grade in elementary school. Um, he wore his sister's hand-me-down socks to, to school, some uh, shoes to school, sometimes wore socks, just socks without shoes to school. He was a bully. Um, and you look at his bullying and you think, when I kind of get it, seeing what he came from and what he had to go against. But he was a kid who would steal your lunch money, beat the crap out of you, stole your bike, would, would burn off the paint, and then... Um, Paint it again and ride past your house on purpose just to say, hey, hey, look at me. Um, he was pissed. Yeah, he was angry. You know, he was angry. And um, one of the, uh, you know, the famous, I don't know if it's famous, but the reason he got his nickname, Bo, it's short for Bohog, which is short for Borhog, which is when he was, I think, 12, he and a bunch of friends um, went to a neighboring farm with sticks. For three days. Yeah, for three days, the goal being to beat and kill the largest boar hog on the property. And they just went at it, went at it, went at it. Actually, it's funny because he wrote about that vaguely in his autobiography in 1990. So I went to Bessemer 
And I went to the property where it happened and I actually found the son of the farmer. The farmer's dead, but I found the son. And he talked at length about sort of his dad and what he went through. And basically, Bo and his buddies spent three days beating the crap out of a hog. Didn't kill it, but his nickname became Bo from Boar Hog. And he, he had an older brother who went to reform school. And his older brother would always tell him stories of being sexually assaulted at reform school. And that really scared, in a way, Bo Jackson straight. Like, he did not want to go to reform school and get raped by kids, <laughs> which is a weird motivator, but you take what you can get. You talk about uh, his stutter, and you explain in the book how some of the conversations were just painful. How do you mm. think that impacted him? I mean, moving forward, I mean, he got to Auburn, and he still couldn't really hold conversations with people he didn't know. I mean, I, I think it's you could see it in even up till today, I think. He's very guarded, very prickly, very reserved. Um, the thing that kind of set him free a little bit was the sports information director at Auburn was this guy named David Housel, who was a really good guy. And he saw Bo and he knew he needed to communicate better. And he had him enroll in theater classes or certain theater teachers who worked on diction and sort of pacing. And, you know, Bo really learned to pace himself. And when you hear him talk now, it's not like he doesn't have a stutter, but he knows a hundred percent how to manage it where it's deep breath, take your time. I... Like if you hear Bo Jackson talk, he literally speaks like, I was very determined to run, you know, like, and he learned that from being at Auburn. But I do think like getting made fun of, always having the stigma definitely had an impact on his sort of unwillingness to relate with people to a and, certain degree. And that stutter keeps him back a grade, which so now you got a guy who is a freak athletically, but now he's physically a year older than everybody he's playing with. And yeah, it's funny. Yeah. Because I, I've been saying, like, I grew up in a town, Mayo Pack, New York, and we had a kid, Mike Abbott, who is K through six, the dominant athlete, right? And he was just bigger and stronger and faster. And it was like, everyone thought Mike Abbott was going to be the next, you know, Ron Guidry. And then <laughs> one day, we all catch up in size to Mike Abbott. And all of a sudden, Mike Abbott's fastball isn't intimidating anymore, and he's just another athlete. And Bo Jackson you could have made that argument because he was a year older than everyone. So it's like, look at this guy, he's dominating everyone. But he actually kept growing and kept getting bigger and kept getting stronger to the point where he was playing with older kids in summer league baseball. And he never stopped growing. It wasn't like when he hit 10th grade, everyone caught up. When when he hit 10th grade, he was the size of a 12th grader. Yeah, he, conti he continued to grow. And, and you talk about that. The, the name of the book, you know, The Last Folk Hero. And it's really cool because... You know, in today's age, day and age, and you go through this in the book, like everything is is on video, you know, right, wrong, or indifferent. It just is. And with Bo, there you would hear stuff. He was one of the last guys where you would be like, did you hear Bo Jackson did this? Did you Going back uh, to his childhood haunts and getting some of these stories out of people, what was that like? And what was, what was the story that just you were like, wow, I'd never heard that, and it's tough to believe. But you talk to five different guys, and they tell you the same thing. Well, it was really cool. It was neat. Um, it is people were very happy to talk about Bo and about his exploits. Um, you know, it's it's like uh, I was doing most of this during COVID and during the deep pandemic when people were really down and sort of isolated and alone. I think someone called, comes along and says, hey, I want to talk to you about this magical athlete who you might remember. People are like, oh, this is great. And it's not about Trump or Biden or Obama. It's not about pandemic. It's not about my kids. You know, like it's this, this is great. So that was awesome. Um, 
That's why everybody loved The Last Dance when it came on ESPN. Yeah. yeah. And uh, what was the one? The Gator guy. What was that guy's name? Remember? Oh, Joe uh, Joe Exotic. Yeah, like, <laughs> I think otherwise nobody gives a crap. But that Nobody was gives a shit about Joe Exotic tomorrow if that comes right. out. Right. He's basically yeah. Alf already. Yeah. <laughs> I like but, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I'm going to – I'll tell a different thing because I've been telling the same story over and over. But when you ask, like, things that, like, caught my eye or things that really – in a way, it's something that didn't. That was interesting. He um, he wrote an autobiography. It came out in 1990. Bo knows Bo. I read it as a teenager. I love it. Me too. Yeah, Dick Shaft. Sure. It was a definitive biography. And in the book, he wrote about going, coming to Auburn and going over for 21 with 21 strikeouts in his first 21 at bats as a college baseball player to document and illustrate the struggles he had. And that was one of my guiding things. Like when I even pitched the book. I was like, to show how far he came, Bowen 0 for 21. And I'd talk to different teammates, and they'd be like, they would cite the 0 for 21. Oh, man, he struggled so much, 0 for 21, 0 for 21. And then I started getting the box scores. I requested all the old box scores from Auburn Sports Information Department. And Bo's first ever college game, he went 2 for 5 against uh, <laughs> Illinois State. And I was like, well, that's weird. And then he went 1 for his next 19. And... He did struggle, obviously. So, you know, he, you know, he went three for his first 24, but that's not 0 for 21 with 21 strikeouts. And I just think in a way it spoke to this sort of importance might be too heightened of a word, but like why biography is necessary and why you can't just have autobiography, everything, and you're going off memory, like reporting matters, digging matters. And it's like, oh, he didn't go 0 for 21. That's actually kind of interesting. He told a story, this is off topic a little bit, he told a story recently on two different radio shows, Rich Eisen and Yahoo, where they asked him what his biggest moment was of his pro career. And he's like, easy, I can tell you the date. It was July, whatever, 1990. I was on the Royals, we were hosting the Brewers, and I took a call at strike three, argued with the umpire on purpose so I would get thrown out of the game because I wanted to be there for the birth of my daughter. Okay, I heard him say that and I thought, I don't recognize that story. And I looked through the box scores they weren't playing the Brewers on the day he said they were playing the Brewers. He wasn't in the lineup that day. And he didn't get thrown out of a game all year. Like, not one game. He didn't get thrown out of any games. So I'm not saying he's lying in any way, shape, or form. I just think memory is a funky thing. And when you go back and you do your research and you dig and you dig and you dig, I just, maybe it's uh, self-promotional. I feel like there is a value to that. Yeah, and you mentioned that too. He talks about his first carry at, at Auburn being a disaster, and, and oh, yeah, yeah you, and you note the fact that he made two incredible jukes and got a first down on an eleven-yard run, and he calls it in his book with Shap a, a disaster. And it's not again; he's not lying. I am a hundred percent certain he is not lying. He just remembered something, and it wasn't the way it was. And maybe Dick Shap, in his role, wasn't supposed to go fact checker. Maybe they didn't hire a fact checker. Maybe pre Google and internet, it just slipped through. But yeah, I actually forgot about that. That's a good point. He writes literally about his first run being for no gain. And it's, I watched the tape of the game, and that's not even remotely true. He had a great run on his first run in college. So, you know, whatever. So he's, he's, in Alabama, he's in Alabama. He doesn't go to Alabama. One thing I think you highlight about, and this is – I got a whole separate podcast that talks about sobriety and alcoholism, but I, I was – I'd never really heard about Bear Bryant uh, and – it, by the time he was, I guess, like 69 or, or when he was recruiting Bo or around his last year, he was really fading as a man, as a coach. 
And uh, and you mentioned that, like he was, there was a lot of alcoholism around that. You, how, who told you that? And, and were people surprised to hear stories like this or was that already out there? No, it was definitely well known. And um, I got it from different people who are chronicling, chronicling him. There were some biographies written about him that talk about his drinking. Um, I thought one that was interesting, I think it was Tim Jesse, who was a running back who wound up going to Auburn. And he said he took a recruiting trip to, um, it was Tim Jesse, he took a recruiting trip to Alabama and he sat next to Bear Bryant. And Tim Jesse said his father was an alcoholic and the stench of alcohol coming off of Bear Bryant's breath actually turned him off to go to Alabama. So um, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like I revealed something overly okay. shocking. I just kind of extended on it. Yeah. yeah, well, that was very interesting. And, and, and Bo ends up going, there's a booster who lives in Bessemer who really kind of latches on to Bo and his mother. And the guy, like you said, he was always like a fern in your living. He was always there, you know, not like, not uh, not good or bad, but he was always there. And, and this guy, uh, what was his name again? Freeland Abbott. Freeland Abbott. What, so did was he the difference maker, Freeland Abbott, living in Bessemer and being around Bo? Is he what got him to go to Auburn? Yeah, I mean, there probably would have been another booster if it weren't that booster. But, um, you know, Freeland Abbott was a guy. He'd played at McAdory High School two decades earlier where Bo went. And now he was the local uh, Auburn booster. He told Auburn very early on that this Bo Jackson kid is worth recruiting. He kept his eyes on him. And it's funny because it's like the wild, wild west days of recruiting. I mean, I guess today's there's always a wild, wild west. But back then it was really interesting. Like Auburn decided they wanted Bo Jackson. They were worried about him going in the baseball draft. I mean, he was picked in the second round by the Yankees as a senior in high school. And they basically cocooned his mother and kind of cocooned him. That this guy, Freeland Abbott, they would always have someone around. Um, at baseball games, Auburn would have people sitting next to Florence Bond, Bo's mother. So like security. Like security again? almost. Almost like security. And, <laughs> um, you know, Bo definitely, Freeland Abbott, the booster, definitely gave Bo a lot of stuff, which you weren't allowed to do. You know, there's a, Bo talked about it. You know, I, a lot of my research was based on, I, I acquired all these old transcripts from Dick Schapp interviews that Bo did for Bo Knows Bo, the autobiography that were never used. And obviously there's a reason some of this wasn't used. I mean, Bo talked with Dick Schapp at length on the record, but wasn't used in the book ultimately about uh, this booster, Freeland Abbott, giving Bo a lot of stuff through the years while he was an amateur athlete. So, you know. That comes and, out in 1990. It can be like a huge, that that becomes a story right. almost more so and than it the didn't. book. Yeah. It didn't. And I don't blame Dick Schapp. I mean, he was writing Bo's autobiography. He was hired to write the autobiography. So it was Bo's call, but he was getting a lot of crap. And the thing I always say, like the reason some people have said, you know, refer to it as scandalous. I don't consider it even remotely scandalous on Bo Jackson's side. Again, he was from abject to abject poverty. Um, he had every right to take that money. I mean, Auburn was going to milk that guy for every dollar they could. You still go to Auburn. They're still selling Bo Jackson jerseys in the stores and they're still selling Bo Jackson memorabilia. So if he was getting money to attend Auburn as a poor kid from the deep South, African-American 1970s, early 80s, I see nothing wrong with that. You go into, and we won't go into this now because I want to get some other stuff, but the race, you go into the impact that had on just, you know, 2% of the people that go to Auburn are black. And it's like how many of those are, are, are athletes? And the way that athletes were treated as compared to regular black folks, it's just nuts. I mean, it really is a window into that time. I would tell people to get the book even for that history lesson. He goes on to win the Heisman Trophy, uh, and he picks football 
over baseball with which at the time dude i remember looking at the sport mean baseball over football but yeah baseball over football and i remember seeing the sports illustrated cover you know bold move bow and it was kind of like i can't believe he's doing this yeah I, you know i can't i can't like i not the usfl right which is now i guess defunct at the time but or no it wasn't was the usfl that was last season yeah okay um but he decides to to play baseball, and I think he's in a Memphis Chicks uniform, you know, getting ready to play in, the, in that Sports Illustrated cover. Why did he choose baseball? Well, number one is he hated the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and he felt like what they did, you know, basically Bo was a senior at Auburn playing baseball, and the Buccaneers convinced him it's okay to fly in for a physical because the Buccaneers are going to have the number one pick in the NFL draft. So whether it was Freeland Abbott, who Bo blamed his his you know, quote unquote agent, whether it was the Buccaneers, whatever, him flying to Tampa Bay cost him the remaining remaining eligibility from his senior year of baseball, which really cut him deep. So he basically was like, screw the Buccaneers. So the Royals come along. He actually visited the Royals because he he maintained he was serious about baseball. And people are skeptical. But the Royals fly him in. John Sherholtz is a GM at the time. And he says to Bo, are you I need to know, are you using us for leverage or are you serious? And Bo's like, you have my word. I am very, very interested in playing baseball. So the Royals use a fourth-round pick. I mean, Bo Jackson, honest to God, would have been the first pick in that draft if everyone knew he was a certainty to play baseball and never play football. They use a fourth-round pick, and um, they have all these negotiate. He does not want to go to the Buccaneers. He also likes being the contrarian. He likes this idea of, like, everyone says, I'm going to do this, so I'm going to do this. Like, he revels in that, no doubt. And the Royals agree to two things. Number one, they agree to pay him a million dollars which is a significant number for him because it meant he was a quote-unquote millionaire. And number two, they agreed in the contract that he would get a September call-up in 1986. Oh, so, really? Yeah, so they agreed all this, and um, he signs with the Royals. And one of his great joys is saying, screw you to the Buccaneers. And I know he reveled in sort of the shock. And Hugh Culverhouse, the owner of the Bucks, had always said, you know, we'll offer him enough money. He'll want to do this. He'll want to do this. But you couldn't really buy Bo Jackson that way. It was kind of admirable. How about when he he goes to dinner with Steve Young and Hugh Culverhouse, and I guess Culverhouse steps away, and, and what does Bo say to, to Steve Young? No effing way I'm ever going to sign here. That was the recruiting. Hugh Culverhouse, this is after the Bucks drafted him. Bo's agent said he should still go meet with the Buccaneers, so he flies to Tampa, and Culverhouse enlists Steve Young to help a recruiting visit, and they go to dinner, and uh, Culverhouse steps away from the table, and Bo says to Young, just so you know, there's no effing way I'm ever signing with this team. <laughs> Steve Young is like, okay. That's it, yeah. yeah. How, how does he, when he goes into, you're, you're talking about Major League Baseball players and, and NFL football players, monster egos, monster athletes. What was it like, who resented him more? The the, the, the Royals players or, or, or the guys he played with on the Raiders? So you would think intellectually it would be the Raiders because when Bo played football, he sort of said it'll be my hobby. And that was a weird choice of words. You know, <laughs> you're an NFL player. You live and die with this profession, and some guy comes in and he says it's going to be a hobby. But um, the the Raider uh, Royal players were furious. Willie Wilson, in particular, their star center fielder, was just out of his mind. That here's this guy; he needs work. He's only 23, and the team that doesn't allow me to whatever play off season basketball. When you say he needs work, he needs like instructional work. Like he like. Yeah, he's raw. Yeah, he's as raw as you could be. He really is. He was not majorly ready when he came up to the Royals in '86. He was super, super raw. And George Brett talked to me about that a couple of spring trainings ago, where he's like, he just, he never fully learned how to play baseball. He just was so phenomenal athletically that he sort of roared past it. And um, 
when he announced that he was going to play, when he he announced he was signing with the Raiders, the uh, the Royals were in Toronto playing the Blue Jays. And I mean, the reaction was really fierce. And Bo Jackson used to, um, it was kind of a dick move. He would hang the sign at his locker during baseball season and he would write, don't ask me football questions, right? And um, the rub writers, it was a crap thing to do for writer. He was a, Bo was a juvenile guy sometimes. But when, as soon as he signed with the Raiders, um, Willie Wilson, I think, wrote a sign that said, ask me football questions. <laughs> yeah, they, they, uh, they, it's, I can't imagine how either, either group would handle that just because it's just such a prime time, uh, you know, deal, you know, playing in the NFL, playing yeah. major league baseball. You mentioned how Al Davis kind of turns on him. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, he was, Al, Al Davis loved him because it was kind of like sticking it to Marcus Allen. But then, you know, that that was an interesting situation with the Raiders. Well, Al Davis had an enormous ego. And I talked to a bunch of different people about this. Like, if you think of any team, every team has their signature player, right? Like the Giants would be Lawrence Taylor. The Bills would be Jim Kelly. The Bears, it's Walter Payton. But when you think about the Raiders, maybe Ken Stabler or Marcus Allen, like not really a definitive all-time player. And that was sort of deliberate. Like Al Davis wanted, he was the signature of the Raiders and the the logo with the patch was just a signature in the crossbones, but not a player. And he hated Marcus Allen because Marcus Allen got too big. Uh, and he brings in Bo Jackson and Bo Jackson's his kind of guy in a way because he's this, in a way, renegade, wasn't going to play football. Now he's playing football, that kind of thing. That's right, right up his alley, you know? Right up his alley. But then he just got sick and tired of Bo Jackson becoming the talk of the Raiders. And this guy's bigger than the Raiders. So at one point in 89, the Packers used a second overall pick to draft Tony Mandritz out of Michigan State. And Mandritz is holding out because he's made it clear he doesn't want to play in Wisconsin. And um, Al Davis calls the Packers about trading Bo Jackson for the number two pick in the draft. And uh, the Packers say no. <laughs> but he, Al Davis really got tired and fed up of Bo Mania and Bo Nose and all that stuff because his ego is too fragile. How much did Nike have to do? I mean, obviously everything to do with the Bo Nose, but with him playing two sports? A decent amount. It was definitely a push by Nike uh, to Bo's agents saying, if you, you know, we have the shoe, it's a cross trainer. We're trying to emphasize two sports. Um, maybe Bo would consider playing two sports. This could be a really huge financial boom for him, for his family. Um, I think ultimately, honestly, I think the push was he really wanted to play two sports and thought it'd be cool. But the Nike money definitely didn't hurt. Yeah. Um, and moving on, a couple more things about Bo. Um, he is an enigma. I mean, was he difficult? When, you, when you, you mentioned you talked to 720 people, what was it like talking to Bo himself? You, you did talk to him. Only for a half hour. I talked to him when I, first, when I was first working on the project. I sent him some books and a letter, and he called me one day uh, in 2020. And he was, um, he was very nice. He was very friendly. He was driving to get his wife a salad. He chatted. He talked about what he was doing now. That's so Jeff Perlman. He was driving to get his wife a salad, right? Yeah. Chop salad. Yeah. (laughs) And um, he was like, um, it's like, but I don't really, I don't do this kind of thing. I'm not, I don't want to be involved. And, you know, I have no problem with you writing a book, but blah, 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 blah. And that was it. The thing is, like, I will say, um, I think for these guys, it's one thing. All right, someone calls and you don't know that much about them. And all right, he's going to write a book about me. Okay, fine. And then you start getting calls from all of these people. I'm sure he did. You know, I got a call from this guy. I got a call from this guy. Hey, who's Jeff Perlman? Do you know who Jeff Perlman is? And I definitely think 
you know, like he tweeted the other day, not the other day, like a month ago now, um, something about the book. He didn't use my name, but he said, um, I can look it up. He said something about if, um, if you want to read a, you know, if you want to read a biography, um, yeah, I'll just I'll tell you real quick. Yeah, he, yeah. Wrote, he wrote, if someone releases a quote, unauthorized biography, it means they're using someone else to profit for themselves. Don't be fooled into thinking this is a true representation. If you want to hear the real story, then wait for me to release it. And then he tweeted on October 27th, for those asking about autographs, I won't be signing any unauthorized biographies about me. Thank you for understanding. And that's the only things, uh, that's the only things I've heard from him. So I don't know. I actually don't know. I don't even know what to say. I, I sent him a book. I haven't heard back. I don't know. He's an enigma. I mean, he really is. A, he has been all his life, it seems like. Well, you know, I always say I kind of get, I always, I always say this, like you're Bo Jackson and some guy calls you. He's like, hey, I want to write a biography about you. Oh, okay. So um, how much will I be getting? Well, I can't pay you. So how much insight, how much input do I have into the story? Actually, zero. Um, do I have any final say? No. Are the things maybe if I ask you not to use, you wouldn't use? Well, I can't really promise that. Like, so what's in it for him? Yeah. And my answer is always is that this is, I admit, a little self-indulgent. But I think having a definitive biography done about you puts you in a certain stratosphere or means something about you or says something about you. You know, like I'm not writing the Marcus Allen biography here or the Christian Okoye biography or the Gary Sheffield biography. Like I think Bo Jackson is an important, significant, historic sports figure who needs to be remembered. So what's in it for you is that you're going to have a definitive biography written about your life and career. And someone's going to talk to 720 people and try to figure out what you mean in the history of sports and the landscape of sports in the same way Howard Bryant wrote a biography of Hank Aaron and Jonathan I did Lou Gehrig. Like, I consider Bo Jackson to be that important. So that's what's in it for you. But if that doesn't do it for you, I, I understand. A couple things about Jeff Perlman, and then I'll let you get out of here. How fast did you grow up? You came on the scene for me in, uh, in 1999 with, with the article about John Rocker. Uh, and he was perceived, I mean, I guess he was, like, as a racist. I mean, he was definitely, the stuff he said was unacceptable. Then, and now, I, uh, well, that depends who you talk to now, you know, uh, <laughs> different circles that guy could run in. What was that like for you when you promote that, or, or you write that piece about John Rocker and, and the backlash? Um, I didn't enjoy it. People think you enjoy it. I didn't enjoy it. I'm sure there were moments that it was kind of cool, like your parents seeing you on TV or something when you're a young writer. How but old were you? I was 27, so I wasn't okay. I wasn't a baby, but I was. It was my first real. Uh, what do I do? You know, what yeah. am I supposed to do? <laughs> Moment. Um, I I have always believed. Um, I'm not a. I don't want to knock these guys, but. The whole Stephen Smith, Skip Bayless kind of approach to quote-unquote journalism where it's me, 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 I, 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 look at me, look at me. I didn't really grow up with that, and I don't really like – it's not my thing. They're kind of like, like, they're kind of like wrestlers, dude. That's how, always how right. I Right, and you know what? I can't – I I used to be harder on those guys than I am now. I can't begrudge them for making a living and for doing this. Like, they found a slot in sports media. Like, I used to be very, like, kind of – cold toward the idea of bill simmons and then you find out well he kind of established something and so did those guys so i can't i can't kill him but it's not me and i was really brought up with the idea that like journalists are supposed to tell the story not be a part of the story so when suddenly you're thrown into the story and you are part of the story and you're not used to that and you're at a place sports illustrated that really really frowned against that kind of thing 
um, I did not enjoy it very much. So the one, one of the questions I want to ask you as a follow-up to this, as a man and a writer, you have to do one of the hardest things in the world, which is you got to keep covering the Braves if, you, if you're assigned the Braves. How do you handle that? On the, what's your next interaction with John Rocker like? Well, first of all, I would say a woman would probably even be more courageous than me. So I would say, <laughs> yeah, all right, fair enough. Yeah. Um, well, basically, what happened, I'll tell you, all right, quick backstory. When I was at the Nashville, Tennessee in my first job, my second to last story ever for the Tennessean was to cover a David Lipscomb football game. They were playing Montgomery Bell Academy, I think. And I had a line in my story, it was just a high school sports game. David Lipscomb's quarterback was named David Kirkow. And I wrote, Kirkow had an up and down game. His passes were way too up or way too down. Okay. Not a big deal. A throwaway line. But that week, I just caught a load of crap from parents, very angry David Lipscomb parents writing in, how could you do this? How could you do that? Blah, blah, blah. So I had already accepted a job at Sports Illustrated. I was one foot out the door. And my editor was, there was a prep editor at the Tennessee named Larry Taft. And he insisted for my last assignment, I cover the next David Lipscomb football game. Now, all these David Lipscomb parents are furious at me, but I went out to the Lipscomb game. And at the end of the game, I'm on the sideline. It's a fourth quarter prep reporter. You go down to the sideline to interview people. The team, a bunch of players surround me. And David Kirkow, the quarterback, comes up to me and he says, don't you ever come around here again. And I always think it's funny because David Kirkow thinks he ran me out of Nashville because that was my last assignment. <laughs> ever for the Tennessee. But it was a really important lesson for me about accountability that you always show up. So Yankees are playing the Braves. It's summer of 2000. I haven't seen John Rocker. Since the article. Since the article, I volunteer to go down. I'm not happy about it. I'm not looking forward to it. But I do feel like it's kind of like knocking on doors. Like you just kind of, I always say in this profession, you don't get braver. You just learn to walk through your fear. You know, like I was not, I'd be just as nervous today having to face John Rocker as I was back then, but you just do it because you have to do it. You just fuck it. What choice do I have? I'm going to do it. So I go down. And uh, I'm walking through the bowels of Turner Field after spending probably 98% of my time with the Yankees. And I hear a voice and it says, uh, you don't know how long I've been waiting for this. And I look up and it's John Rocker. And he spends, I don't know, probably a minute and a half maybe undressing me in the hallway, chewing me out. And that was it. And I kind of moved on with my life. Um, and it's funny. I just said to my kid the other day, I swear, I was like, it's amazing promoting the Bo Jackson book, how often John Rocker comes up. And I'm like, I don't like talking about it, but it is a part of my history. And I know I'm not, you know, I don't even mind talking about it. It's just, just a thing that's there. I mean, if it was the only thing people talked about when it came to you, it would probably suck, but that's not the case. Yeah, well, I think for a while, I mean, I'm, I'm, I guess like I'm happy that my career has gone a certain way that like I thought I did, I guess I was concerned might be an exaggeration, but it certainly didn't escape me that I might be, 80 years old and the most the biggest thing I'd ever done was John Rocker. Like that would be a disappointment to my career. And then winning time comes along and I'm all good. Yeah. <laughs> You're definitely all good. You're a celebrity. All right. I guess that's all I have. I mean, I could keep you here forever. Um anything what's next? You're always pretty uh, you you you're you're pretty dodgy about these questions. But what's your next project? The only hint I'll give you is you saw my uh you saw the photo that was on the screen before I uh before I did the the uh Let's go. Before I jumped on but all right that's like it kind of when, 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 when would that come out oh i don't know i i have like two years to work on it oh, we're looking for we're looking forward to it man jeff thank you so much for your time dude the link to the book and you know you can get it on amazon amazon will be in the show notes and 
you know, thank you very much for your time, Jeff. I, I really oh, appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate you, it. You got it, man. All right, take care. All right, thank you. This has been a Rogue Media Podcast. We are Rogue Media Sports.